Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I would imagine that you recognize every one of those. That even just beginning to say them, you would recognize them. Um, some of you may know them, one or more of them, be able to say them yourself. They are powerful words that have helped shape part of our nation. They have moved us in directions. They are things that we look back on and still recall. That type of power is what Jesus is giving us today. Words like those are the way these words are meant to be taken. As we go into John 13, 31 to 35, this is not just a new rule. What he is giving is a way of forming a people. He's giving a direction, a way to live. He's giving the DNA of who we are as the body of Christ. The words are that significant in this section. Would you pray with me? Father, all of us come here today with things on our minds. We've got fears, struggles, things with family and work. Some of us are just tired. Lord, help us to focus on your word. Teach us. Let our hearts and minds be engaged as we hear these amazing vital, life-changing words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Use them, we ask, in his name. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles underneath the chairs. You can grab one of those. It's on page 900 in those Bibles. Don't have any idea what page it is in your Bible. Hopefully you can figure that out. John chapter 13. Beginning in verse 31, the significance of the new commandments is seen partly in what he says before he actually gives it. Verse 31, when he had gone out, that is Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. That now is one of the most, if not the most, significant now in Scripture. That now clues us in to the very moment that all of Jesus' life was leading towards, right here. If you go back into John 12, he will say, the whole purpose of my life was this hour. Right? That's where we're at. It's that moment. That now is, you go into Ephesians 1, 
what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit set in motion before the foundations of the world is coming to a head right here. That's this now. I mean, it is a major now. Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Let's talk about glory for a minute. Glory is to be honored, extolled, lifted up, all of those things, glory. And right here, the Son is going to be glorified by the Father. And the Father will be glorified, lifted up in what the Son accomplishes. But I have a question. Now, I'm going to come back to that part. I have a question. How do you define what glory looks like? Right, think with me. The Olympics are coming up soon. I'm excited. I know soon is, you know, but it's soon because it's four years apart and it's coming up soon. I love the Olympics. But when you win the gold medal and you stand on that platform and they take that thing and put it over your neck and your whole country is cheering for you, you are being lifted up. That is glory. You are being glorified in that moment. What does glory look like for you? But even a different question Think about all the ways in our world. Okay, in John chapter 5, Jesus says this to the Jews. You are looking for glory from one another, not from God. In John chapter 12, he says this to the authorities. Some of them have believed, but they will not confess out of fear and because they desire God, glory from man more than God. As you think about glory, Here's my question. Where do you most search for glory at? From whom do you most want it? If you think about being lifted up, about being honored, who is it that you want to honor you the most? And number two, how do we usually get glory? Right, think about that Olympian. That was a lot of hard work. And it's probably an amazing specimen of a human being physically. You don't win the Olympics outside of that. There's some greatness in this person. They have fought for something. There's something amazing about them. And now they are being lifted up because of that. When we talk about the now and the glory of the son, it involves his death, his resurrection, and his ascension back to the father. But I want you to see something. It will come through his death. It will come not because of some amazing, wonderful thing that the whole world looks at and goes, wow. In fact, most of the world is not looking. Even his own won't be looking. He will die a terrible, shameful death virtually alone. And that is the means by which he's brought into glory. That is not the way that we typically think of coming into glory. For Christ, it was a humble obedience to the Father that led to a self-sacrificial death for others. That led to glory. And so I come back to it. Where do you seek glory? From whom do you seek it? Where are you looking for it? I'm, I'm going to let you in a little on my own self right now. Um, I'm not going to point him out because you'll see him, but there's another clergy who has come today for the first time. He and I talked last week. They've just come to kind of see us and hang out with us and perhaps get involved if things work out. 
But I can tell you something. I'm just being vulnerable here for a moment. When I saw him, one of my first thoughts was, I hope this sermon is really, really good. (laughs) That's terrible. I am looking for glory from him. Here's a fellow clergy that I want to be impressed by something I do, and I start thinking, did I put enough into it? Did I do this? That's not the point. It's to give God honor. It's for God to use this in the lives of his people. It it doesn't matter what I look like. But that's our challenge. Where is it that you're seeking honor and how are you seeking it? I'll give you an image. In St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, it is the largest Gothic-style cathedral in America. And on Christmas Eve, they'll do 24 hours where people can come through the cathedral. And in 24 hours, 25,000 people will go through this. And here's what they'll see, this manger scene with the baby Jesus sitting in the middle. And just think about a baby. There is nothing powerful, strong, beautiful, yes. Gentle, yes. Humble. But it's not power that you see in a baby. And yet, you can walk outside St. Patrick's Cathedral and you can look across to Rockefeller Plaza and there is a 15-foot bronze statue of Atlas. And it stands above human height at the feet, so then another 15 feet. And it's got the world sitting on him. And all of the muscles that are rippling, that is the definition of power and glory in our world. And so you can stand between the two and you can ask yourself, how do you seek glory? Is it Atlas or Jesus? This humble baby come into the world without much fanfare, without many people even recognizing it. That's what God did. How do you seek glory and from whom? Go back, if you would, into the text. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children. Little children. John only uses that one time in his gospel, right here. But the impact appears to have been a lot on the Apostle John when Jesus said to his own little children, because in his epistle, he'll use it a half dozen times to talk to the congregation. Little children. Judas is gone. Jesus has just said, now is the moment in history. All of it pivots on this. All of the universe pivots on this. And he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You're going to seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. They're at a meal right now. Jesus says, I'm leaving, you can't follow me. You can't come with me. What I'm going to do, you can't do. And then these words, a new commandment. Just let that sit for a moment. A new commandment. Imagine, imagine the president comes on TV and he says, I've created a fourth branch of government. Imagine our bishop says to all the churches, I've added a book to the Bible. There are now 67. I just wrote one. 
How many commandments are there? Ten. I mean, just ask Charlton Heston. There are ten, right? <laughs> Not eleven. There are eleven commandments. If you are a Jew and you're sitting in this moment and he says, a new commandment, you can't get weightier than that. I mean, that just, okay, so, so what you're saying is we're having this meal. You are about to be glorified. Everything you've been doing is coming to this moment and you're giving us a new commandment. You're ready to die, all this. Whatever you say next, oh my goodness, how much significance does this have? Before we even get in there, I want you to jump to verse 35. We're going to go just a little out of order here for a minute. By this, the new commandment he's going to give, all people will know that you are my disciples. Before we tackle the commandments, I want you to see this. Okay, they are at a Passover meal, or at least a Passover context. There's debate. But it's a Passover context that John explicitly draws attention to. Okay, right at the beginning of chapter 13, this is before the Passover, the language is the same as Matthew, Mark, and Luke when you get to the meal. So this is a Passover context here. Now, let's back up and talk about Passover. There were promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that were not fulfilled in their lifetimes. In fact, the people will end up in Egypt, in bondage, in slavery. And then God will deliver those people by the blood of the firstborn. Bring them through the sea. Take them to a mountain where he will give them the commandments. And the commandments, they were not just to-dos. The Ten Commandments were not just a bunch of stuff you have to do and check it off like a spiritual checklist. I did this one, I did this one, I did this one. Those commandments were meant to form the people of Yahweh. They would be recognized by those commandments. It would be who they are, not just what they do. And those are two very different things. Here, we're getting it again. In this case, it's the Son who by his blood will rescue a people. And now he is giving them a commandment, the same kind of imagery you get back there. But it is not to give us a rule. It's to give us a way of life. It's to give us who we are to be. This is what I want my church to be, the DNA of it. Recently, um, we got a lab puppy because apparently raising three humans is not enough. Let me tell you what a lab puppy is, what a puppy is. It's a hairy baby that is mobile and you can't put a diaper on it and it chews on the furniture. That's a puppy. Hey, my favorite dog has become any dog not at my house. That's my favorite dog now. And we have a house that faces east-west and so the sun comes up in the morning and it shows everything on the floor. It snows dog hair at my house. It's like an inch of dog hair every morning that's across my house. You walk through it and it pops up in the air. You walk. <laughs> it's amazing stuff. And I thought the first time, oh my goodness, my poor dog, she's probably naked right now. All this hair. And I go and find her. She's not naked. She has twice as much hair as what she had the day before. And then I go, for the love of God, why did I not get a golden doodle? Because they don't shed. I could have avoided all of this, but they don't. You know what? Golden doodles, they're actually made to not shed. When they were first bred, it was for the purpose of people with allergies. 
They were actually made not to shed. It's part of their DNA. You don't have to go to a golden doodle and go, don't shed anymore. I'm going to teach you not to shed. And if you ever figure that out, let me know. I teach my dog how to not shed. <laughs> but it's, it, it's who they are. In fact, the majority of people who know what a golden doodle is, that's the first thing they think of. The dogs that don't shed. They're identified by it. If somebody wants to get one, it's usually because I don't want dog hair all over my house. They're identified by it. By this, all men will know you're my disciples. That's what this is. The commandment is an identifier. It's a formulation of who we are shaping us. Right? And that by this is so significant because how many things are we trying to be identified by? He doesn't say your style of worship, whether you use hymns or whether you use praise songs or have a guitar or not have a guitar. He doesn't say by whatever your view is on the rapture or the end times that that's how people will know you. It's not denomination. And it is not all of those things that we publicly protest. We're the church. You can't do those things. That's not what he says we'll be known by. In fact, it's the opposite. It's the commandment that we're going to look at in a minute. That is the only thing Jesus ever says. By this, people will know you're my disciples. Before we hit this commandment, just put it all together. The context of a Passover meal, the now, all of his life coming to this point. He's getting ready to die. These are the last words he's going to say to them. He waits for Judas to leave. Then he says, now, little children, I'm going to give you a new commandment. These words, you cannot overstate how significant they are. So, what are they? Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The newness is not in the love. I mean, the last two weeks we've been studying this. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The newness is in to whom this is for and the way in which it's supposed to be done. Love one another. Brothers and sisters, that's us, right? This is not repetitive. He's already said, love your neighbor as yourself. No, this is us. Everybody in this room who says, Jesus Christ is my Lord and you are filled by the Spirit, that's us. Love each other and do it in the way I loved you. Now notice, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor the way you love you. He just raised the bar. Love each other like I loved you. That's the kind of love I'm looking for. And if you think of that kind of love, let me just give you some examples, right? When Jesus first called his own, the calling had nothing to do with qualifications. If you look at the various people that he called, it wasn't because they were great theologians or preachers or anything else. He called them despite some of their lack of qualifications. The same is true of you. The question is, do you love fellow believers in that way without expecting them to be this, this, or this, but loving them anyway? I'll give you some other thoughts that he did. His disciples let him down who knows how many times. 
I mean, just read the Gospels and watch how many times they're like, I don't get it. I don't know what's going on. What's he doing? They're arguing about bread. I mean, there's all this stuff. But here's what never happens. He never gives up on them. He never just goes, oh, I'm done with you. You people are just dumb. I'm moving on. I'm finding more disciples. He sticks with them. When is it that you give up on fellow brothers and sisters? All right, let's go even further. Think about Peter. Peter lied to Jesus to his face. He actually says to him, I won't deny you. Yes, you will. No, I won't. And then you get to that moment. I mean, Jesus is on trial for his life. Everybody has left him. He is alone. And Peter still denies even knowing him. And Jesus is within earshot. And in Luke's gospel, they actually look and he sees him. Now, have you ever been betrayed? I have. And I don't know, I guess I'm just into being, into being vulnerable this morning because neither one of these things were part of my message. But I have been, and I have not treated this person well. I have not done what Jesus did. I can tell you what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for probably what many of you are waiting for. I'm waiting for that person to come make it up to me. I'm waiting for that person to come figure out, you screwed up, you come tell me how you screwed up, and then maybe I'll think about forgiving you of it. John 21, Jesus isn't waiting for Peter to come to him. Jesus goes to Peter. Jesus initiates reconciliation. That's the love he has for us. And then go to John 13, where we're at. He loved his own to the end. And then he bends down on his knees and he begins to wash their disgusting, grimy feet. And when I say that, I don't think we have any idea how disgusting these feet are because we don't have the streets that they had. They are walking around in garbage, refuse, defecation. I mean, there is a point right here where the only people washing feet are slaves. Here is the Son of God getting down to wash their feet, to humbling himself before them. We are called to humble ourselves, to lift each other up even more than we lift ourselves up. And then he would give his life. He would die for people. And, and think about this. One of the hardest parts about loving people is not having expectations they're going to love you back in the same way. It's about protecting ourselves. Because you put yourself out there, and there are times where you're going to get hurt. You know what Jesus didn't do? He did not walk around Jerusalem in the first century and go, all right, I am going to die on a cross for your sins. But I want to make sure some of you are actually going to embrace this. Because that's a huge sacrifice. And if nobody accepts this, he did it anyway. Whether we would embrace it, reject it, love it, hate it, didn't matter. He just loved us and got a ton of rejection for it. That's his love. I mean, it is a deep, radical, uncompromising, honestly ridiculous kind of love. And he says, I want you to have that kind of love for each other. That's how we are to be the body of Christ. Love one another as I have loved you. And I guarantee you, if we're loving each other in that way, people are going to know something. They may go, you're an idiot. I mean, why would you ever do that to somebody? You're just going to get hurt doing that. Why do you sacrifice all this for that? Something will come out of it. Because it is a radical kind of love. What does this mean? 
give you a couple thoughts. Okay? There's way too much. I mean, you could write books on what this means. Because again, it's not just a, a, like a law or a rule or a spiritual, spiritual to-do that you check off. It is forming us as the people of God. So here are a couple thoughts. Number one, you cannot do Christianity the way Jesus wants Christianity done alone. You can't do it. Because if you are alone, there is no one another. I mean, this is so foundational, this context, this language, everything else, that you have to have other people. Okay, I'm going to be honest again. This is my third honest statement in this sermon. I don't really like people, right? I'm an introvert. Like, I like being alone. When this sermon finishes and I tell you all goodbye after I smile at all of you and I love you and I hug you and everything else, I'm going to go home and crash by myself because I'm an introvert. Okay, I do love you. Um, I just don't love being with you. <laughs> I just, like, it, it kind of drains me. But you know what? I don't have an option because this is Christianity. You are saved into the body of Christ, not into you, but into the body of Christ. And we're meant to live this thing together and to love one another. And small groups have always been a challenge for me. I mean, honestly, I, in fact, 10 years ago, I would have said to you, if I ever am leading a church, I don't want small groups. I don't like small groups. Do you know why we're starting small groups? Because of this passage. Because fundamentally, you have to have community as Christianity. Now, I have loved many of the small groups I've gotten into. But it's just, again, it's more people I have to be around and give that energy to. And it's hard. But it is who we are in Christ. And so what we are doing with net groups is we're giving you the opportunity to live in community with, with a smaller amount of people. Because this community is too big. You can't love that way every single person in this room. And so we're breaking us into smaller communities to live this out, love one another. It's also going to mean this, humility and trust. Foundationally, those two things, because you are going to have to get over your pride. You are going to have to risk yourself to love somebody like this. You're going to have to risk getting hurt. You're going to have to risk not having reciprocation to what you do because it's not based on that. You're going to have to give up seeking your glory your way and seek it from God his way. I mean, all of this is part of the community that Christ is building. But I will tell you that the early church, they did not explode because somebody was so great. It was because of that community that showed a world something different. And it grew and it grew and it grew. Even when Christianity was hated, rejected by the government, persecuted, it was still growing. Because the community understood this, I think, so much better than we do today. That we are the body of Christ, loving one another as Christ has loved us. And it is a powerful testimony. There's a little girl named Elizabeth Hughes. She, uh, she was eight in 2011 when this happened. She's older now. But in 2011, she was eight years old. 
and she was in Norfolk, Virginia. She was singing for the first time the national anthem at a hockey game, an arena that holds 12,600 people, and she's singing this before all of them, eight years old. And partway through, as she got to the higher parts, the system went out, just cut out. And here's this little girl trying to get her voice over everything. And so she ends up stopping for a moment. There is, as described by somebody, a nervous laugh that happened by one person. It wasn't like laughing at her, but just kind of a, what, what, what do you do in this point? This is kind of an important moment here. They're singing the Star Spangled Banner. What do you do? She just started singing anyway. But most people couldn't hear her. She's an eight-year-old girl. This is a giant arena. It's filled with bodies. The entire arena erupted in song and finished it out with her. They sung it together. Even the hockey team was singing down on the ice, and at the end, they tapped their sticks on the ice. I mean, it just, the guy who was coming up to give her the mic, to give her a new one, to do something, ended up just stopping and knelt down because it was so beautiful to have all these voices together doing one thing. Imagine what the church could do if we actually were together. If we actually loved each other more than some of the fighting that divides us. If we loved each other more than our pet peeves. More than those things that just, no, I can't talk to that person anymore because of whatever it is. That we took seriously. Love one another as I have loved you. And by this, all people will know you're my disciples. My fear, my experience, is that these words are just lost, forgotten, not thought about very much. Definitely not the DNA of the church. You're all going to recognize this. In fact, most of you probably memorized it at one point. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. It is Lincoln's most famous speech. But according to a professor at the Claremont Institute named Harry Jaffa, it is not his most significant it's the one that everybody knows, but it was not the one that made the most impact at the time and ultimately made the most impact in our country. His argument is that the house divided speech that Lincoln gave was even more impactful, more formative, because in that speech, Lincoln took a stand on slavery that he couldn't turn back from. He took a stand that would push us into war, that that speech did more in the life of our country and in Lincoln than the one that we all know. It actually led to a formation, to a shaping of people. Blessed are the peacemakers. Everybody knows that. Even our culture knows that. Judge not, lest ye be judged. I've had that thrown at me by our culture. And they know that. There are certain things that we all know. My fear is we don't know love one another as I have loved you 
and by this all men will know that you are my disciples. And yet that, that was formation. That was the heart of being the church, of being the people of God. Without it, we will not be what Christ has called us to be, and the world will not see what he wants it to see. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, inspire in us, your people, a heart and a passion to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially to recognize that he's called us to love each other, so much so that it would be our very identity. It would be what people think of when they think of the church. It would just stand out. Look at those people. They're followers of Christ by the way they radically love one another. Help us to see it, to do it, that we might bring honor and glory to our Savior who gave his life to form the church, to rescue us, and to bring us into relationship with you. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.